Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you on Valentine's Day 2022. It's freezing here in Florida, so I can only imagine what it's like up north. Joining me today in the studio, we're delighted and honored to have Larry Thompson, who joins us. Uh, he is the current chairman of the board of Ledger X uh, LLC. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Christopher. I appreciate you inviting me to be here. And I'm happy to participate in this discussion. Awesome. As you know, a bit about Messy Times, we strive to provide some kind of deep dive insights into parts of the market that most people wouldn't get a look into, right? Uh, but crypto is kind of a hot space right now for even for people who don't know the markets very well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about LedgerX and FTX and how those interact and, and, and how you came to be involved. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned FTX because yesterday, during the Super Bowl, I think we had one or two commercials. Yes, uh, which is phenomenal ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I thought they were pretty good. Yep. Uh, we also had a number of our key employees who were at the Super Bowl, including our founder, uh, Sam Brankman Freed, mm -hmm. uh, who was sitting at the Super Bowl and, and enjoyed his time. That's right. uh, let me first talk about what Ledger X LLC is. Uh, which does business, by the way, as FTX U.S. derivatives. So we got a DBA, although the official legal name is still LedgerX LLC. Right. We are an exchange. Um, we are a derivatives exchange. We have a license from the CFTC uh, to be a what is called a, a derivatives clearing organization, a DCO, and we. Um, clear and settle trades that are done in Bitcoin futures uh, and Bitcoin options, as well as Ethereum uh, futures and Ethereum options. Mm -hmm. These are all uh, fully paid for, uh, meaning that there is no leverage at all in these securities. Mm -hmm. So you know, from that standpoint, you know, they're pretty safe bets in terms of what's happening. LedgerX itself has been around since 2014. It's been a DCO uh, or a CEF underneath, which is a self-regulating organization underneath the CFTC since 2017. I got involved with the company in late 2019, uh, was the interim CEO for a brief period of time. And one of the things that I did that I'm most proud of is I hired our present CEO, a fellow by the name of Zach Dexter, who runs you know, what is now FTX US Derivatives. Uh, and Zach was one of the original founders of LedgerX. Hmm. Uh, he was the one who came up with a lot of the uh, technology that underlies the structure of what the company is and how it works. Um, along with a couple of board members who are also still involved, you know, with the company. But, but in this case, they sit on the board as opposed to being in management. Zach is also on the board of the exchange as well. For those, very quickly, just, just for those people who might not really understand the difference between, say, trading cryptocurrencies out of their own wallet or trading on a derivatives platform, derivatives exchange, what would be the main difference if someone's going to come trade on FTX? Well, we don't, we don't trade the currency itself. Uh, we trade, we are, as the name implies, we are a derivative. So a future is a derivative of something else, of an underlying asset. 
In this particular case, if it's a Bitcoin future, the underlying asset is Bitcoin. Right. Uh, and, you know, what you trade on our platform and the futures is a derivatives of that. Right. So the future is a derivative of, of Bitcoin and or an option on it as well, because we do options as well. So that's really the significant difference. Now, there are two other parts of FTX. There's FTX International, there's FTX US that actually trade the currencies directly. So, so, if, you wanted, transactions so if you wanted a transaction directly trading the currencies, you would go to FTX US or FTX International uh, and, and be able to you know, get a position by the, uh, the currency and be able to trade the currencies back and forth. You can't do that on a derivatives uh, operations right. such as ours because we only deal in futures and options, even though it's in two currencies. That's, that's, that's interesting. Now, are you seeing, uh, has there been consistent growth of one of the derivatives platform, the spot trading? Has one of those always been growing faster than the other or has it kind of been variable over time? Well, I think, you know, right now it's hard to sort of measure the derivatives platform versus the, the currency platforms predominantly because um, we only can trade, you know, fully paid for Bitcoin futures and Ethereum futures. So there's no leverage. Yeah. Uh, however, you can do leverage on the other exchanges that deal with the currencies. Right. So if you look at the growth of the, uh, the non-US exchanges or even the US exchanges that aren't regulated by the CFTC, but may be regulated by a state you know, money rule or some, something like that, sure. uh, they, they probably do a multiple of what our volume is. Um, we are now presently talking to the CFTC. We're in discussions about the ability to be able to leverage, to come up with the kind of risk systems that they would feel comfortable with. And we think they will eventually uh, agree to leverage in the marketplace, become very good and be able to deal with it in some fashion. For all the big talk, I think this is an important bridge for all the big talk in the market. They're like crypto is a brand new thing and, and you know, old school bankers know nothing about how these markets work. Um, quite the contrary. Like a lot of people very experienced in traditional financial markets have made the transition to making these markets work really well. Your background speaks to that, right? I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you came from. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I am originally um, uh, from the cash markets. Uh, I was the vice chairman and general counsel of a company called the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. The Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation clears all of what we call the cash equity securities markets here in the U.S. So we dealt, so we dealt with all of the stocks and bonds that were traded on the New York Stock Exchange, on NASDAQ, uh, and, as well as over-the-counter markets as well. So uh, on a yearly, plus we did money market instruments. Uh, we did uh, state municipal bonds um, and all, all sorts of other, you know, cash securities, what is called the cash market. To give you some idea of the scope of how big 
DTCC was. It, had, it ran two clearing organizations and it had a depository that really dealt with the other types of marketplaces that it had uh, going back and forth between banks. Um, so on, an, on a yearly basis, when I was there, DTCC on a yearly basis would probably clear about 1.6 to 1.7 quadrillion dollar value of securities. Now, you think about what a quadrillion is, because that's the next question you were probably going to ask me, <laughs> is a quadrillion is a one with 19 zeros behind it. So, you know, it's, think of it as being a thousand trillion. So in congressional terms, that's just a rounding error and how much they're willing to spend every day. Um, you might call it a rounding error, <laughs> but, you know, it just speaks to the size and the scope of the transactions. And so this um, is the big... In, in, invisible to most people underpinning of the plumbing that makes all this you never see possible. all you know is that your securities that you buy from your broker are going to be settled uh, right now they settle on a t plus two uh, range when i was there for most of my career they settled on a t plus five then starting in the late 1990s it settled on a t plus three um, decision and then starting in 2012, uh, you know, we and more recently we went to T plus two. And I think there's a, a move afoot now to really move the markets more to a T plus one, um, you know, settlement cycle. Yeah. All of that is an effort to take the risk of having to hold those securities for a day or two uh, after you've traded them. Uh, you, you know, you're going to need some kind of capitalization. That's what happened in the securities markets, as you may recall, a couple of years ago. Actually, I guess it's less than a couple of years ago now uh, with Robinhood. Right. And they had a big hit uh, in terms of what was happening with their margin accounts. And the margin accounts were all to make certain that you had the right, right amount of capital to make certain that you could close all of the transactions that you had to at the clearing corporations, any clearing corporations that they were talking about were all ran by DTC. Right. And so for, DTC, those, for, those people, for those people unfamiliar, if you've got an E-Trade account or Ameritrade account and you log in and you buy 100 shares of whatever, it instantly shows in your account that it's in your portfolio. But in reality, what settlement means is that the trade is actually done. The people that used to have the securities have not given them to you. Your cash has gone to them. And T plus two means trade date, meaning when I just did it, two days later, it's actually settled. So for convenience sake for retail investors, the portfolio shows that it's done, but in reality, it's not done. Uh, but the risk associated with that 100 shares is de minimis, whereas an institutional investor buying a billion dollars worth of, of stock, there is going to be some risk of settlement. So that's where be. institutions like the DTCC step in to smooth that risk, underwrite that risk, and make sure that you know, they get paid a little bit to make sure that the market runs smoothly. Well, you know, you, you described it perfectly. That's exactly the issue that you have. But you got to remember, even for the retail uh, brokers uh, and clearing agents, you know, even though your transaction was 100 share and maybe somebody else's transaction was 150 shares and somebody else's was 500, right. all together, when you look at all of those trades put together, they can be a pretty massive number. So they can look very much like an institutional trade that's being done in the millions of shares on a daily basis that you're going to have to have the appropriate capital to settle those with. So I agree with you. 
you know, it shows up instantly in your account at your broker dealer. Um, or if you want to have a physical certificate, you can get a physical certificate because right. there still are people who want to have their certificates in paper. Maybe they put them in their own safe. Maybe the they put it in their short mattress. Um, but you know, those are the possibilities. That all goes to why, by the way, you have a settlement that could be less than trade date. Because everybody wants to know, why can't you settle all of these transactions on a daily basis? The fact of the matter is, DTC settles about 35% of all of its transactions on a daily basis. Right. However, because you're dealing with a very complicated world situation, there are shares that are being traded in Europe uh, on European exchanges that list American stocks. Microsoft, for instance, you could buy, I'm sure, on the European stocks. You also have the Asian markets. The Asian markets are well ahead as well as the European. They're all ahead of the U.S. markets. So in order to be able to deal with that and also deal with stock loans and other transactions that you have, you need to have time for the entire envir environment to be able to function as a whole, which is why you have trade date plus a couple of extra days in order to make certain that all of these other transactions can occur. Now, here, here's a question that I think relates potentially to the bridging of that long experience with you know, traditional financial market, market structure and emerging um, uh, kind of DeFi, very popular concept or, or crypto. Um, how has that deep experience with the realities of how capital flows and asset flows move around the world, how has that informed what you've been able to do or, or why you were brought in, I guess, to LedgerX and, and into the, the new crypto environment? Is that a big piece of it? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, crypto has the great advantage of being a new technology in the financial services industry. You got plenty of other technologies that are called legacy technologies, which can slow things down and may not have the latency of some of the crypto uh, blockchain um, technologies that we have. So in the crypto world, by and large, first of all, everything is dematerialized. You don't have physical certificates. And at the moment, anyway, even though you have international exchanges, as well as US exchanges in all of this marketplace, it's still a relatively small market. Mm. You know, right. um, if you look at the total size of the crypto marketplace, it's probably around two, three trillion dollars altogether. Yeah. As I described to you earlier, DTC alone settles, you know, about, actually now I think last year it settled well over two quadrillion dollars worth of securities. So if you looked at it from a standpoint of just comparing two trillion to that, it's a minuscule dollar amount. Right. And, and yet, uh, because it's a new technology, and it's dematerialized, it can work on a 24-7 trade day. So the trading takes place every day of the week, 24 hours a day, and it settles all of those transactions fully electronically all the time. Right, so it's continuing so, to you know, From that process. standpoint, it, it just churns out uh, the ability to deal with it. And it's a different market structure altogether, which is why, you, you know, you will have so many other different changes that you'll have to have and why I think crypto is such a challenging new technology and can be used 
uh, to speed things up in a traditional uh, world as well. So blockchain technologies will be used, I think, uh, by fintech companies and other exchanges to speed you know, the delivery of products back and forth to the marketplace, to bring in other parts of the marketplace users who probably don't benefit from the market structure as much as you have right now. Mm. So you take Africa, for example, you know, you don't have in Africa to try to the kind of traditional banking structure that you got in the US and in Europe. So, you know, a new technology such as the blockchain technology and crypto can really fill in a major, I would say, a, a vacant area uh, oh, yeah. in terms of the whole banking area and grow there. I think the same thing is true in South America. Yeah. Uh, and even at home in the Caribbean. Yeah, and also here as well. I mean, the fact of the matter yeah. is, it's a growing technology. It's You can see from the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, yesterday with the crypto ads that were done and, at the Super Bowl, you know, how much excitement there is about yeah. this, and especially in the minority communities and the communities that have not been well served by traditional financial markets. That's a huge point, right? I, mean, I, I just heard it brief, briefly, but Arawak X in the Caribbean is a brilliant new exchange. And part of the great realization, we had a great chat with their CEO and CTO a few weeks ago, was precisely that, that, that the, one of the downsides to the centralized traditional market structure we've got is without, without being deliberate in any way, dispersed uh, populations without a lot of capital aren't worth serving, right? There's no point in putting a big bank branch on an island in the Caribbean that has nine people living there, right? You have to travel to Nassau. If you want to, even if you're in the Bahamas and those, you know, many, many islands, you would travel somewhere where it's actually worth it financially to build a bank. But with yeah. the decentralized financial model, it is, as you say, dematerialized and it promotes a massive degree of financial inclusiveness for populations that just weren't kind of worth serving for a myriad reasons. Um, and it's well, one of the most brilliant things it can do. I'm glad you mentioned the Bahamas because the Bahamas actually happens to be the home of our international business. So FTX International is now based in the Bahamas. And one of the reasons hmm. that it's based there is that the government very much embraced crypto yep. and the new technologies because they understood that they were being underserved by the traditional financial markets Badly. because of the many islands that they had and that crypto could fill in you know, a lot of that activity and has done so extremely well. So yeah. they're very crypto friendly in terms of their new legislation. And I think the U.S. will find there's real value in having similar legislation for the crypto markets to encourage innovation, because this is what this is all about. It's yeah. encouraging innovation. It's really trying to make certain that you can get as many people who are being underserved into the financial marketplace so that they can get the same values as everybody else. It's really democratizing the financial marketplace. That, that is brilliantly put. And part of, the, part of what I've always found so fascinating in, the, in having these kind of market structure discussions with people who do not specialize in, in understanding the underpinnings. To them, you know, money is just a thing you use to buy stuff with. It never occurs to them that there's an infrastructure and a cost to maintaining the systems that allow you to swipe your card at the gas station or at Costco, right? Um, and to me, crypto or, or decentralized finance is the right solution. Like things like the Grameen Bank, everyone get very excited about in Asia for microloans. 
but they were still wrestling with this problem. You've got a wholesale banking infrastructure cost structure to manage. The fact that you're, still, you're only making a loan of $8 doesn't change the paperwork that goes on. It's the same paperwork as if you were making a $90,000 loan. And that's yeah. what made this so difficult. But by removing all of those infrastructure costs and that overhead, suddenly it is possible for me to make loans of between nine and fourteen dollars to a thousand people. It's as easy as typing on my computer, and that is is for those people who are part of the revolution already, if you want to call it that. For those people who are already involved. It is crystal clear. But for those people who've never thought about it, when they do hear about it, like a light bulb goes off, like oh, yeah, that does make sense. No wonder why there isn't a Chase, Citibank, and a Wells Fargo on an island with 800 people, because it's not worth it. Right? You can't justify the cost. But Right. And, so, and you also see more and more because of the laws that have been put in place, you know, the anti-monitoring laws and the rest, those costs to the large institutions have actually oh, been going up. Huge. So the large institutions, as their, as their expenses expense base has grown, you know, are less, more frequent to want to, you know, do things in a place where they're simply not going to be able to get the best bang for their buck. Right. You know, crypto, on the other hand, of course, it can cut through a lot of that paperwork and make it a lot easier to deal with, especially when you use, you know, the blockchain technologies uh, to get rid of the intermediaries that you may have in those marketplaces. You can cut back significantly with those expenses and make it much more worthwhile for the large companies even to get into those businesses, it's which is why you see more and more fintech companies that are now beginning to partner with large banks and yes. small banks in order to do business. You know, so you get a company like Figure, which announced that they are now in a partnership with New York Community Bank here in the New York region. Hmm. Uh, and that's that that I think is something that you're gonna see more and more of. Uh, you know the fintech companies, the blockchain companies, you know, Figure has a blockchain technology called Provenance that they're using uh, to help settle trades, private trades that is, mm. uh, but also to help out with HELOCs, you know, home equity loans, which they can do a hell of a lot cheaper because of the blockchain technology that they utilize as well. So, and, and you see the New York Community Bank taking advantage of that so that they can compete more effectively with the very large multinational banks such as City uh, and, and you know, Bank of America. That's, that's, that is really smart. Um, one thing I should, I, I don't want to be one of those people suggesting people go back and look for uh, uh, Super Bowl ads, but Larry David's ads for FTX was, was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. And it was very illuminating because in the, in the way that only Larry could deliver. But without this being an ad for FTX, um, in general, uh, uh, you know. By the way, I posted on it saying, you know, since my name is Larry, right. uh, that I, I, I was very happy with the, with the ad. <laughs> it was very well done. Um, his journey through history was magical. It'll never take off. Uh, but uh, for those people who've heard all the terms, maybe you could give a quick primer on what's the difference between a cryptocurrency, a smart contract, a non-fungible token, NFT, you know, as you guys look at this, as you're building, helping your management team think about how they build their business, you know, what are the core components of those three? How do they all relate to the blockchain? Maybe a quick thought on that would be very helpful for everybody. Well, you know, look, cryptocurrencies are exactly what we're talking about. These are currencies 
that are not your traditional fiat currencies. They're not dollars, they're not yuan's, they're not euros. Um, you could have a digital dollar at some point. You could have a digital yuan. In fact, I think there is a digital yuan. At yeah, this point. they're working on that, yep. Um, and you, know, you may have a digital euro. Those will be a digital version of a fiat currency. Bitcoin is not a fiat currency uh, and probably won't be a fiat currency except in very small countries like El Salvador. I think that's the first place where it is. Um, it's yeah. it's actually the national currency of El Salvador, um, Bitcoin. But it's having some issues there, quite frankly. I can only um, imagine it's a risky company. move. I understand why they made the move, but it's a risky move. I understand why they did it. I'm not quite certain if they fully understood it. Uh, blockchain is a technology which underlies all of the cryptocurrencies and there are many versions of those and everybody who comes out has their own version there's almost as many versions of blockchain technology as there is blockchain companies and right. at this point there are probably thousands of companies that use the term blockchain in various ways essentially what it is is it's a think of it as a network where you will have a, a, a nod or noodle or whatever you want to call it on a chain. But instead of everything being sent to you and then you having to approve it, you get a decentralized group that essentially will reconcile everything at the same point in time. So everybody on that chain will get the same information at the exact same time which cuts out a lot of reconciliation costs that you can have, which now underlies a lot of the expense burden that sure. you have in financial marketplaces. Because I got to send it to you, uh, Christopher, for you to look at it. You may have to send it to somebody else for them to verify that information before you send it back to me saying that it's verified. And by the time you send it back to me, if anything has changed anything at all, I'm going to have to verify it one more time. Right. Which means that I, I may have to incur another additional expense. You know, and if there's been any other transactions, then we're going to have to go through that reconciliation process all over again. That is a very expensive proposition. Whereas if I have a node on a blockchain and it's automatically updated all at the same time, makes things a lot simpler and we can move on. So... Uh, an NFT is what they call a non-fungible token, right? And it could be anything. It could be a piece of art. Uh, it could be a, a sculpture. And often it is these days exactly those things. Non-fungible token is a way of building, I think, wealth in this industry. Mm -hmm. And more and more, all of the you know, operators of Bitcoin are now offering NFTs as a way to get more people involved because you can build wealth in a very quick fashion by buying into it as opposed to trading the currencies themselves. Right. And the currencies themselves, as you've seen, can really float in terms of what their value is. So you had Bitcoin, which was you know two years ago, may have been at 20,000. Uh, six months ago, it was close to 70,000. Now it's back down under... 45,000, I believe it's about 43,000 today. Um, and that means that its value you know, fluctuates. It's great for the traders 
volatility is wonderful. Who uh, love volume and volatility, yep. uh, who make money on that. It may not be good for an individual who wants to hold a store of value for a period of time. That's, that, that may be the differences that you want to talk about, which is why trading uh, futures may be a different way of getting there. Because if you can trade a future, you don't have to worry about what the underlying derivatives changes because you're making a bet as to what it will be either in the future or be it be it increase or be it decreases. Right. You buy futures either way and options the same way in order to protect your underlying position that you may have. So if you have a cash position in Bitcoin, that is you got Bitcoin that you're holding uh, and you want to protect that in some fashion, being able to go to a DCO like uh, FTX US derivatives means that you can build a position to protect that position in the future, um, you know, from the kinds of, of volatility that you can have with the underlying derivative um, asset. Hopefully that makes very quickly, because that's, I, it's important. I, I, I want to make sure that for those who are not familiar, they really get this point that um, if I've got a token that I've issued as a currency or whatever I'm calling it, whether it's based on Bitcoin, my own protocol, I can create, you know, Christopher coin if I want to. I can issue that out. If everyone wants it, great, they'll buy it. If they don't, they won't. But all of those, if I issue a million Bitcoins or a million Christopher tokens, each one is interchangeable with the other. It's the same thing. It's like, whole, it's like I've got this dime and you've got a dime. We swap them. We both have the same dime. Whereas the whole point of a non-fungible token is it's unique. It relates to it's, this it's very unique particular it's, token. It's not fungible by its very nature. Yeah. It says a non-fungible token. So you could do things like real estate title, title to commodities, title to artworks. Title to artwork is one of the key areas that you talk about. You can buy a token and that an NFT in art, which is where it's really had seen its value grow. Yep. Uh, because artwork is not fungible by its very nature. Right. Whereas, you know, the example I use in terms of fungibility is that if you go to your bank and you deposit a dollar, you know that you have a dollar at your bank. What right. you don't know is what dollar do you have? Right. The chances of giving you back the exact same physical dollar bill are almost zero. <laughs> Absolutely. It is zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll never see that same dollar bill again. Yep. Uh, and that that really, I think, describes the difference between fungible and non-fungible. You know, fungibility right. is, is really good for cash instruments uh, and for Bitcoin in general, because you can you can fun, you can deal with that in a fungible mass. So the because of that, I, I do want to interrupt, but because of that, in terms of what Ledger X FTX do then all of the futures and options that are traded on your platform have to be fungible tokens, right? You, you can't do it. Or can you do futures contracts on, F, on NFTs? Is that an idea that you guys are playing with? Well, I don't want to talk about what the products are because that would mean that I'm getting ahead of what right, sure, sure, sure. management sure. people are doing. Right. Uh, but conceptually, but sure that's I'm something sure that... I'm thinking about how do you do a futures on a NFT? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they've been thinking about it, whether or not... It's going to be a product line that somebody would want to do. Yeah. Um, that's a different question. Tricky. But 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 obviously, you know, the idea of a future is you want to protect your future value. So if there's a way that your NFT is going to drop in value and you can try to deal with that by putting an option out on it or putting a, putting a futures position on it, 
That would be something I would think that we would want to do because that really is what futures and options are meant right. to do. That's what they've been doing traditionally. Um, but remember, what we do in the futures industry is not, you know, we deal with commodities by and large. We don't deal with currencies, although you can do interest rate futures. Yeah, as a proxy, uh, you know, right. That's a product on them. Uh, but it's regulated by a part of the regulatory structure in the U.S., the Commodities Futures Trading um, Organization, you know, the CFTC, which really deals, it's got its start with uh, hog futures. Um, you know, the boiler market. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, could, you could buy pork. Uh, yep. And things of that sort. But not onions. I love that. The peculiarity of U.S. securities laws is the onion futures market was such a debacle during the, cr the great crash that they outlawed. So right now, futures exchanges, you cannot list a futures contract on onions, of all things. It's not allowed. You could potatoes, scallions potentially, but not onions. It's, it's illegal under federal law. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so well, you know, um, I'm, I am very familiar with the CFTC, but even I didn't know that fact that you just told me about the onions. That's the bizarre peculiarity of our that, legal system. No, nope, no trading onion futures. They go right to jail. <laughs> I love that. Good, good, excellent. But well, last, you know, last, sorry, go ahead. Go, you go ahead. The last question on NFTs. I think the other thing that people may have heard of is fractionalized NFTs, right? So. There's a, there's a, or a DAO is similar to that, where here's a piece of art, say, and very few people could afford to buy a $75 million NFT based on a Picasso from the blue period, right? But if you split that up into a million fractionalized NFTs, well, maybe a million people could buy $7.50 worth of that. Right? It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the products that we do offer is we do, you know, we do many Bitcoin. So we take Bitcoin and we divide it by a hundred different positions. Right. And that makes it, uh, allows it to be a lot cheaper for the individual to get back into that marketplace because they don't have to buy a full Bitcoin in order to do business. They can buy a one one hundred of a right. Bitcoin and still be able to do business. It's the same concept for the NFT where if the dollar amount is a million bucks, you know, most people are not going to have a million dollars, but if you can break it up, into 10,000 pieces, maybe they'll have, or actually larger than that, maybe 100,000, maybe they'll be able to buy it at a fraction of the cost that it would have been. And so you can broaden the marketplace and allow more people to participate in this marketplace. That's a good thing. Yeah. You know, as I said, democratizing the marketplace is a good thing for all markets. It makes people understand what's happening. You know, it's good that people have to educate themselves like you're doing in this show, educate people about the different marketplaces that are out there, the financial markets, because a full understanding by the public about, you know, the marketplaces, especially financial marketplaces, will make them smarter, much smarter consumers. And hopefully when they all retire at some point, they'll all be retiring with enough funds that they don't need government intervention to help them out. And uh, well, this has been really awesome. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm sensitive to your time. Maybe a quick sense for those people who are thinking about this. What's your estimate of how many sort of crypto-like exchanges exist currently? 
in the U.S. and globally. Some are regulated, some are not. Like, do you have a sense of what that looks like? It hasn't been exploding? Yeah, we, we have some sense of it. I mean, obviously, every day you get a new crypto exchange coming out, most of which are not regulated because, you know, they're either in countries that don't have a regulatory structure, such as the one in the U.S., right. uh, or, um, you know, they're under a different kind of regime uh, that may be legal in their own particular country, but where other countries that have much more sophisticated regimes, like the U.S., may not recognize or allow their citizens to participate on those exchanges. So, you know, that's that's an issue that you got to always be careful about. Sure. Um, so I think there's about a thousand exchanges out there at the moment. I mean, in the U.S., it's only a handful. Right. Um, you know, you can you, you name all of the big ones. They they were all doing commercials yesterday. Coinbase, Coinbase um, you know, FTX, we were all there. And FTX is a relatively new uh, exchange. Ledger X, as I mentioned, only got its license in 2017. Right. So if you look at it in terms of an age, it's less than five years old. Right. Um, and like so many of these innovations are, right? Just because it's young doesn't mean yeah. it's not the right and thing. That's, and that's the great thing about innovation. You should have regulators in the marketplaces who really push innovation and are going to allow innovation under the current rules. And what we found is that the CFTC is a very good regulator in that fashion. They were the first ones to set up uh, Innovation Lab. Uh, they've been followed by other regulators in other countries uh, and other regulators here in the US. So the, C yeah, the SEC has now set up you know, a sandbox or uh, an Innovation Lab as well for fintech companies uh, and for you know exchanges to think about what it is they want to do and how they can do it and to grow underneath the regulatory regime that we have here in the US. And in the US we have a complicated one. Oh yeah. A lot of countries, <laughs> a lot of countries has only one regulator for both the derivatives marketplace as well as the cash marketplace. We have two regulators. Uh, and if you think about the banking structure as an overlay of all of that, you have the banking regulators on top of it. And then you have the FSA, the financial securities, you know, ability right on top state of all of that. State by state regulators so and layers it's, and layers. It's a, it's a mismatch of regulators here in the U.S. Yep. You know, there's about 14 or 15 different regulators, not counting the state regulations. Not counting the states, right. Um, so, you know, when I was at DTCC, we dealt with, I think, just in the U.S., about 180 different regulators. But we had an international business. Right. So if you looked at the regulators that we <laughs> dealt with in Singapore and in Europe, um, you know, Hong Kong, China, you know, you're talking about another 200, 230 regulators. So we had a full-time business called the Care and Feeding of Regulators. Care and Feeding of Regulators. I was going to say, it's a miracle that you all aren't alcoholics after dealing with all those <laughs> regulators. Woo. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's what I find fascinating, having you know been a student of regulatory history and having played my own small role in some regulatory developments over the years, um, is how often it comes down to the people who happen to be involved at the time, right? The CFTC was chaired by Chris Giancarlo at the time that the CME for Chicago Mercantile Exchange first came to them talking about Bitcoin futures, had it been chaired by someone of a different ideological bent who believed more strongly in government intervention versus kind of let, let, let sophisticated markets determine their own way, we might already have a whole different uh, picture right now. He wrote that great book, Crypto Debt, about 
and he gave some personal history about how all that developed. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the current crop, um, Gary Gens with the SEC is a smart guy. He was also a former CFTC uh, chairman. He um, was. But I watch, we, we watch carefully, and we certainly participate in any common periods. But I look at, for example, the process going on here in the U.S. for looking at uh, crypto-related regulation. And I happen to know what it's like in, say, Abu Dhabi. Um, and Abu Dhabi, frankly, has a clearer, simpler, cleaner view of how crypto should be regulated. Now, that can come down to size of the population, rather not another overly complex government. There are some virtues to a monarchy, not many, but decision-making is one of them. Um, so, you know, do you have any thoughts for, you know, where do you see the pitfalls versus the opportunities for how, I know this is a loaded question for someone who's involved in a regulated business, but in the general sense of, do you get the sense that a lot of good thoughtful care is going into a good regulatory structure here? I, I, I do. Uh, I, I'm, I have been, uh, you know, in talking to the regulators that I've spoken to at the CFTC, as well as the SEC, as well as some of the banking regulators, I have found them to be extraordinarily thoughtful individuals who really care about the U.S. financial markets and understand that one of the key strengths of the U.S. capital markets, the thing that has underpinned their strengths for so many years, is the fact that we've been innovators, that we've been you know, very, very allowing of innovation to grow. You know, it's, it's no, to me, it's no accident that the largest internet companies have all developed here in the U.S. Right. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you go down the list of all of them. And the innovation allowed by the regulators allowed those companies to grow. And I think with that care, is still there and will influence how they think about crypto. You see it at the CFTC, as I said, with the innovation lab that they got. Gary Gensler, I think, is a very thoughtful individual at the SEC. Very he understands so. capital markets. He was a big player in the capital markets. He understands what happened at the CFTC and why it was a good thing. I mean, the, CF the SEC has a much larger agenda than the CFTC does. Right. So it's got to do a lot more with probably a lot more people, which means that things sometimes are a little bit slower. But uh, you know, I think with the careful thought of good leaders at all of the levels that we're talking about, and especially in Congress, because Congress has got to play a role in this as well. Uh -oh. They got to pass the right laws. <laughs> they got to make certain that the regulators are listening uh, and being thoughtful in what they do. I mean, they're the regulators of the regulators. And so we got we to gotta make certain that that is something that is happening as well. And in order for all of that to happen is you got to make certain you give all of the regulators, including Congress, the right information. So if you've noticed, there's been lots of testimony on the Hill by the cryptocurrency industry, talking to the various agencies, but also talking to the committees of jurisdictions for both the SEC and the CFTC to educate those, educate those legislators about what needs to be done and coming out with thoughtful white papers on that. We at FTX have done that enormously. We've come out with three or four white papers, you know, thoughtful white papers in this area. And we're being led by a very thoughtful young leader, Sam Brinkman-Fried, uh, who is very thoughtful, careful in this area, believes in regulation. You know, one of the reasons that 
you know, he came to the old ledger X is that he really thought that our approach of making certain that we had the right regulations behind us and having the right regulators behind us was a very thoughtful way of doing things. So I think with all of that, I'm very hopeful that innovation will be protected here in the US mm. and our financial capital markets will continue to be very robust. On that note, which I can't think of a higher one and a more optimistic one, we're gonna say goodbye for now. We look forward to having you back as developments grow. Uh, again, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. I think people are gonna get a lot out of this. People who don't know much about the markets and already exploring it. So thanks again and uh, enjoy the rest of your Valentine's Day. Hopefully it's a little bit more romantic than this was. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. And have a good day. Thanks for having me again. Ciao.